this equipment behind me reminds us of something that happened a couple of months ago when the big ice storm hit and we lost power. And we found out pretty quick how dependent we are upon power. And really when you think about it, when it comes to electricity, it is so powerful, we're really at the mercy of it. We remember the stories during the ice storm of power lines being downed. And you know the danger of a downed power line. And if somebody were to grab a power line, uh, it's so powerful that they probably could even let go of it if they wanted to. And so because of the power of electricity, we are really in subjection to it. We are really at the mercy of it. I remember at our house when the power was off for so long, and when it, it came on, it would kind of come on for a few minutes and it would go off. And when it came on, we, we would run and try to plug things in and open or shut the garage door, do everything we could until it went back off. And the power of electricity and the power that it has over us and our subjection to it, if you will, is really an apt illustration of what we're gonna be talking about in our text today. The writer of Hebrews is going to say that because of who Jesus is, uh, we are all in subjection to him. He, he is Lord over all, whether we consider him Lord or not. And so it's best for us to just come to a place in our lives where we realize who Jesus is. He is the all-powerful creator of the universe. And because of that, why resist him? Instead, we should submit to him and follow him as a Lord. All right, we're going to come back to that illustration at the uh, end of the message today, but... Uh, I want to begin uh, our message today as we study this text in Hebrews. Uh, I want you to think about your favorite movies where the good guys seem like they're, they're just they're going to lose. They're outnumbered, their back's against the wall, all the odds are against them. And it just looks like in the movie, the bad guys are going to win. And then right at the end, right kind of in the last minute the good guys pull it out, right? Now, we, we love those movies because they have a, a plot line to them. And as we're watching them, even though it looks like the bad guys are going to win, there's something kind of deep within us that kind of says, I, I think the good guys are going to do it, right? So uh, just if you need a little bit of help with that, here's some movies, all right? Just like this. Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Uh, great movie. And if you don't think so, I'm sorry. <clears throat> See, you remember, you know... Sam and Frodo, they, they, they're up at the top, near the top of Mount Doom, but they just they collapse. They just don't have enough strength to get in there and drop the ring uh, you know, in the mountain there. And here's Aragorn and all the good guys, and now they're surrounded by all the evil forces of Sauron out there from the gates of Mordor. And you know, there's just a critical moment in the movie, and it just looks like the bad guys are going to win. But the good guys pull it out. Star Wars, episode four. Right? Uh, the Death Star has cleared the planet, and it is now free to fire on the moon where the rebel base is. Almost all of the X-Wings have been destroyed, except for Luke Skywalker. But Darth Vader has him in a, track, in a, in a, in a target lock, and just as I mean, they've already issued the order to fire on the planet, you think, oh man, the bad guys are going to win. And the good guys, they pull it out. How about Avengers? Remember that scene in whichever movie this was? Uh, there's four of them. 
Remember they have the big battle in Wakanda and Thor has lost his hammer and, and he's getting a new axe made and, and but the, the, the good guys are on Wakanda and all those evil creatures are just surrounding them and they're just overrunning them and just like, oh man, it's hopeless. And all of a sudden Thor shows up. By the way, that's actually the pretty much the plot line to every superhero movie. You could have chosen anyone you wanted to. But we kind of like these movies because the good guys win, but they have this, this plot line, this, this story to them. Now, there is a sense in which that is true of the Bible. Now, we read the Bible. We, we know the beginning of human history. We know the end of it here. And we are privy to the fact in the Scripture that the Scripture tells us how the end comes out. And we know that Jesus in the end wins. But the problem is, in the middle part until we get to that day, it, it, it kind of seems like we can be losing. Now, that's really the setup for our text in chapter 2 today. Because if we put ourselves in the shoes of these Hebrews, of these Jewish Christians, the author of Hebrews has just spent an entire first chapter telling us about how great Jesus is and about how powerful Jesus is. And yet, these Hebrews are being killed for their faith. Uh, they are being persecuted. They are being martyred. They are suffering. And it looks like to them that Nero is just about that close to just stamping out the whole existence of the church. And so the writer of Hebrews in our text today is anticipating their objection here. Because they begin to read this letter, and for quite some part of it here at the beginning, hey, Jesus is so great. Chapter 1, verse 8, he is enthroned in power, and he has a scepter. He's in control of everything. And the, the, the Hebrews are reading this, and they're going to come to a place where they say, well, wait a minute. If Jesus is so great, and Jesus is the winner, why does it seem like we are losing? And he anticipates that objection. And so we come to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. And what the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is going to do for us here is he's just going to give us a little history lesson. And he's going to quote an Old Testament text, Psalm chapter 8. And he's just going to remind the Hebrews, and in doing so, we are reminded of God's long play in history. And that even I may be in the middle part of this long play of history, and it seems like I am losing. If I am following Jesus, I am winning. Because in the end... He wins. So let's read Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so here he is reminding them of the plot line, reminding them of the story, and reminding them that, hey, when it comes to history and God, uh, the good guys win. Jesus is the winner. Now, let's just kind of study this passage of Scripture that we're, we're kind of into here. And let's just kind of, 
answer this first question, okay, okay, is there really any hope? Because that's what these these people are asking as they're they're reading this letter. Now, I want you to look at your Bible with me. I'm going to teach you something kind of really interesting here, just in terms of of studying the Bible, before we really kind of dive into the text today. Um, I I want you to look. If you go back in chapter 1, and look, beginning with verse 4, beginning with verse 5, there's this kind of lengthy discourse about angels, and how most of chapter 1 is about how Jesus is greater than angels. Now, watch this. This is very fascinating. Read verse 14 with me in chapter 1. Are they, referring to angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, skip the first four verses of chapter 2 and make the very next verse you read after 1.14, make it verse 5. So, look, you get to the end of 1.14. Are they not all sent to serve, the angels sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now begin with verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. In fact, even that sentence begins with a preposition. What's fascinating is 1.14 and 2.5 is a seamless transition. You can read this and completely omit the first four verses of chapter 2. Now, why is that? Because probably the author of Hebrews is incorporating kind of an ancient way of arguing, an ancient way of writing to really make a good solid point that we today call sandwich structure. Uh, Mark in his gospel is the most prolific use of sandwich structure in the New Testament. Now here's sandwich structure. Sandwich structure, we we see this in ancient writings. Um, You begin telling a story and then you get kind of sidetracked and you tell another story, and when you're finished with this story, then you go back and finish the story that you started. So it's, it's two pieces of bread. The story starts, the story ends, but in between there is a whole other story. Now, what this paradigm, what this setup does is it is the author's way of saying the story I'm telling you in the middle is really the one I want you to pay most attention to is the one that has the precedence in my argument. For example, probably the most famous example of sandwich structure in the New Testament is in Mark 5, about halfway through Mark 5, Jesus is kind of standing here, he's talking to the Pharisees and stuff, and, 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 and Jairus, a, a ruling Pharisee, servants come to him and say, hey, Jesus, Jairus' daughter is very ill, would you come to the house and help her? And Jesus says, sure. So Mark starts the story by telling you about Jairus and this daughter and Jesus' willingness to go. Now, as Jesus is walking to Jairus' house, all of a sudden he stops. Because a woman has just snuck through the crowd and she's sneaking through because she's unclean. And she has reached out and touched the hem of his robe. And he stops. And he looks at this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. By the way, Mark is prolific in giving you toothpicks in the sandwich. It's what I I call them in hermeneutics. A toothpick is when Mark is telling you a sandwich story, but there's a detail that connects the two stories. In the one that I'm telling you now, the woman has been bleeding for 12 years. Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. See how they connect. So she reaches out and touches him. He stops, and he heals this woman, bleeding for 12 years. 
And then he goes on, and he goes to Jairus' house. But by the time he gets to Jairus' house, the girl has died. And so then Mark says that Jesus just raises her from the dead. Now, you're reading the sandwich structure, and you're like, oh, wait, wait, the middle story is the most important? I would think Jesus raising someone from the dead is the most important, right? Now, it's the bigger miracle from our perspective, but in the way that Mark is arguing, what he's wanting you to know is, hey, you know why Jesus came to this earth? And you know why Jesus has this power to raise someone from the dead? Uh, All of it is to point to this thing in the middle here, that Jesus came to this earth, he died, and he rose again to save all kinds of people. Even people like this woman who is poor and outcast, you name it. So the foundation is Jesus has the power to raise people from the dead. What Mark wants to see, you to see is the application. This can be your power through your faith in him. Now, same thing here. The overall argument of the whole letter of Hebrews is, hey, don't give up on Jesus. Don't drift away. Don't renounce your faith. And don't go back to your way of life before you came to Jesus. The whole argument of Hebrews is stay the course. Hang in there. And so here is the writer of Hebrews, and he begins telling you about the greatness of Jesus, and then he gets sidetracked. He says, oh, here, by the way, first four verses of chapter two, don't drift away. Now, let me come back and tell you more about the greatness of Jesus. So the foundation here is the greatness of Jesus. The application that he wants you to see is because he is so great, why would you drift away or go back and not follow him? So back to the point. What we're seeing right here is that the author of Hebrews is basically answering their objection. Okay, So I'm reading this, and it's like, okay, excuse me, uh, sir, <laughs> if Jesus is so great, he's enthroned in power, he's got a scepter, why are we being killed? Why does it seem like the future of the church is about to go away? And incidentally, that's a good question for us today. Hey, let's just be real honest. Look around at the culture today. Does it look like Jesus and the church is winning? Uh, Even before COVID hit, attendance in churches was on a precipitous decline. Look at these stats. In 1963, just in this country, in 1963, 90% of Americans identified as being a Christian. Only 2% checked the box that said none, no religious identity. Today, two years ago, that number goes from 90 to 65%. Only 65% of of Americans identify as a Christian, and almost one-fourth of Americans say, I have no religious identity at all. So you read these numbers, and you look around, and, and look at the last 50 years, The policies and laws that have been passed in this country have moved us not closer to a biblical worldview, but further away from a biblical worldview. And then just take it from the world and from the nation. Let's just zero in on on who we are personally. If we're going to be very honest and transparent today, let's just face it. There's a lot of Christians, a lot of Christians that wake up every morning and they feel like they're losing They're struggling with mental health issues, they're struggling with loneliness, they're struggling with anxiety, they're struggling with grief, they're struggling with pain, you name it. 
And the reality is, a lot of us feel like we're losing. And so the author of Hebrews steps right into that objection. He says, oh, wait, wait, you're not losing. And so he gives a little history lesson here. And you see, most of what we've read in our text today, uh, verse, verse 6, 7, and 8, is a quotation of Psalm 8 from the Old Testament. And to me, I think the reason that in, in encouraging them, what, what is he trying to do? He's trying to encourage them. I know it feels like you're losing. And I know you're kind of trying to not hear me that Jesus is great and in power and in control. But trust me, when you look at the whole big line, plot line of history, he is in control and he is going to win. And so to enforce that, he comes and quotes from the Old Testament. He said, Let, let's just go way back now. Let's go a long time ago back in, 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 in God's timeline of history now. And let's see what he has to say. And so he quotes Psalm 8. Now, you look at uh, kind of middle part of verse 8, right? There is nothing outside of his control. So the first thing you got to know reading this, no matter how much it seems like the church is losing, God is in control. And God is doing the long play on his history. So if you think the church is losing, just keep having faith and don't drift away and don't fall away, don't fall back. Keep having faith that God in his sovereignty is working out according to his purpose the whole plot line of history. Uh, we often quote the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, right? At the end of God, Matthew's gospel, right before Jesus sends into heaven, he sends the disciples out on the world. He says, now go out into all the world and teach them to follow me and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We, we just did a baptism at 8.30 this morning. But we often kind of forget the very first thing that Jesus says there. Before he tells them to go and do all that, what does he say? He says, all authority has been given to me. So don't lose sight of that truth. Even if you think the church is losing, God is in control. And the other thing that I want you to show, show you, and it's just a little detail in here, and if you're like me, you're reading this, you kind of go, I don't know if I like that. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, he says, it has been testified somewhere. Now, if you're like me, that kind of rubs you wrong because you're like, hey, wait a minute. Does that mean the author of Hebrews doesn't even know that this is Psalm 8? Yeah, the, the picture you get from that is he's writing and he goes, hey, I've heard that. I've heard that in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, the whole thing where man is lower than the angels. Where is that? Where is that? Well, I don't have time to look it up. I'm just going to say that absolutely is not what's happening here. The author of Hebrews absolutely knows that he's quoting Psalm 8. And again, just like in the sandwich structure, he is employing a little bit of a literary device. And this literary device, by saying it's testified somewhere, is his way of telling you in all the revisionist versions of history. And he's saying to the Hebrews, even though everybody would look to you and say right now, you're on the losing side, what the writer of Hebrews says is, the greatest account of history is this one right here. This, this book right here tells you how the world began. It tells you what's going on right now. And it tells you how it's going to end. And you can go to class and learn about all kinds of revisionist history, but here's the truth. And by, by saying it's, it's testified somewhere, he's pointing to the authority of this. You say, you're going to have to explain that, preacher. I don't understand it. I don't, I don't know how to teach. All I know how to teach it to you is to illustrate it, Okay. All right, hang with me here. Let's say 
that in your family, do you, do you have a family member that's always kind of known for having a certain saying or a phrase? You know, oh yeah, old Uncle, old Uncle Joe always says, right? And let's just say that that phrase is, the early bird gets the worm, or the second mouse gets the cheese. Y'all will get that at lunch later. <laughs> so let's just, say, let's just say that I'm the guy in my family that always says, the early bird gets the worm. The early bird gets the worm. It's, oh, yeah, Uncle Todd always says, the early bird gets the worm. And let's say that one day we're having a family gathering, and somebody in my family says, hey, we were wanting to go to this concert, and we knew it would be really kind of crowded and stuff, really popular. So we got up super early that morning, and we were one of the first people in line, and we got a ticket. And I, known for always saying the early bird gets the worm, I hear my niece or nephew say that, and I go, ah, let's see. There's someone that always says the early bird gets the worm. Now, have I been stricken with a case of amnesia that I have forgotten I am the one that says the early bird always gets the worm? No, 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 no. Do y'all see what's going on? By me referring to myself in this mysterious way, hmm, let's see, there's someone that says the early bird always gets the worm. What am I really saying to my niece or nephew? What I'm really saying is, see, I told you so, I know. You, you follow me? So when he says it is said somewhere, it's the same way. He is pointing to the authority of Scripture. He is pointing to the truthfulness of the Bible's version of history. All right? So enough of that background. How does Psalm 8 encourage us today when we feel like we're losing? Now, look at Psalm 8 in terms of what it says about us. When, when you read it here, just say, what is man? And we go back and read Psalm 8 in its context, talking about, you can say it's talking about human beings. So here we are, human beings. And uh, wow, it's amazing that the God of the universe would even think about us, would even care about us. That's verse 6. And then he says in verse 7, you made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, listen to me. Look. When you feel like you're losing, when you get up in the morning and you say, this, 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 this depression, this anxiety, this grief, this stress in my life is just too great. Many times in the darkness of those moments, you feel like you don't matter. You feel like you have no value. You feel like you're worthless. You feel like nobody knows you. You feel, you know, you just feel alone. And the writer of Hebrews uses Psalm 8 to encourage them. Hey, I know right now in the midst of persecution, you feel all of these things. But I want to remind you, this is who you are in Christ. Now look on the screen. Here are the things that man is. First of all, he's made a little lower than the angels. What, what does that mean? How are we a little lower than the angels? Angels are a little bit above us, quote unquote, because they're not limited with a corporeal body and they have more power than we do. But you understand in the scripture, spiritually speaking, the angels are of no more importance to God than us as humans. We have an incredibly high position. Here's the next thing that Psalm 8 says about us. We have honor. You are crowned with glory and honor. What's that referring to? Oh, we go back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And God says, okay, here's all this stuff. And Adam and Eve, they were like the king and queen of creation. And God says, here's all the stuff. Go, do it. Rule over it. Manage it. Subdue it. You have dominion over it. 
And then, right connected with that, they have this authority. And look what it says. He put everything under their feet. Now, everyone look with me. Do you see the words on the screen? As a human being created in the image of God, you have position, you have honor, you have authority. Does that sound like a loser to you? No. But the problem is, uh, where is all that? Uh, here's the authority, by the way. Uh, whoops. That's Genesis 1, 26, 28 with something funny behind it. Let's, uh, here. Anyway, I'll just, just satisfy. Genesis 1 is when God says, hey, let's create, let's create man in our image. And then he creates this, you have dominion over all the birds and the fish and the, everything. You have dominion. Subdue it, be fruitful, and multiply. But the problem is, where did all that go? If I have all this position and honor and authority and all this, and I have dominion over everything, hey, do we have dominion over everything? Man, we're at the mercy of weather. We're at the mercy of a virus. In fact, we don't even have our, ourselves under control. There's a lot of things that we deal with all the time, right? We're frustrated by our circumstances. We are defeated by our temptations. We are surrounded by our weaknesses. Hey, I'm reading at the beginning of the story here, and uh, I should be free, but I'm actually bound. I should be the ruler, but I'm actually the servant, the slave to all this stuff. So here's the thing, gang. We may feel like we're losing today. Even though we've been given all of this, it's paradise lost. And I'm going to tell you right now, do you know why we're struggling? Because we messed it up. It's our fault. God created a perfect earth. The Garden of Eden was a perfect utopia. And in sin, man, we, we just blew it all. And so you read this right here and you go, I still don't get how this is encouraging to people. Because you read through the first eight verses and you say, well, wait a minute. The writer of Hebrews has just brought up Psalm 8 to, to, to basically remind us, man, we had all this stuff and everything was perfect and we were winners and then we blew it and now we're losers and we're struggling. And you say, well, did, did he just bring all that up to remind us that we blew it? Oh, here comes the awesome part. Now you come, to, you come to the second half of verse 8. Watch this. How does the writer of Hebrews use Psalm 8 to encourage people? Watch, watch, watch. So he quotes it. Now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. Keep reading. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Boy, that's the truth. Amen to that, right? That's what we just talked about. But here comes verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And here's your key phrase namely Jesus. Ha! So you see what he's done? He has taken Psalm 8, which is this, this great psalm about our position and our value to God, and he has, he has interpreted it in a way where Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of it. So now Psalm 8 is a messianic psalm. 
And on the surface, Psalm 8 is describing us humans, made a little lower than the angels. I had everything in subjection to me, etc. But now in a much deeper sense, here comes Jesus and watch how, he, watch how he does it. See, like us, Jesus for a little while was made lower than the angels. And he was crowned in glory and honor, just like us. You see it? So here's the encouragement. Here's the history. Here's, here's, the, here's the plot line of the movie, if you will. God creates this perfect earth. Here we are, and we're enjoying it, and everything's great, and we are winners, and then we sin, and now we struggle, and it seems like we're losing. So to fix that, here comes Jesus Christ, and he steps into the storyline here in flesh and blood. And he takes on flesh and blood. And what does the author say right here? He suffers to the point of death, and he even tastes death for everyone. So look on the screen. Jesus comes to break the curse. That's the next scene in the movie. So Paul says, Roman 5, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then look again, he says to the Corinthians, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so see what the writer of Hebrews is doing here? So it says, here, here's the storyline, and we've messed it up, and we're struggling, and we feel like we're losing, and we're kind of wondering, are we really on the winning side? And then here comes Jesus, and he breaks that curse. And he takes that curse onto himself. And so all of us who believe in him by faith, we are now joined with him on the winning side. And so, see, gang, the problem's going to go a lot much deeper than we kind of think. There's a lot of people that think, well, our problem today in the world is, is, is ignorance. If our problem was ignorance, then education could fix it. If our problem today was, uh, was, was dysfunctional circumstances, then we could look at social reengineering. We could say this problem, we could say this problem. But friends, our greatest problem is a spiritual one. And our greatest need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you something. All you got to do is look around the world. And when we humans try to fix the problem with our own wisdom or whatever, it, it, it never works good. I mean, listen, gang. You know, I read... So I read, you know, I read in the New York Times, read in the Wall Street Journal, that the governor of South Dakota last week issues a bill that you, you cannot abort a child on the basis of Down syndrome. And at first you read that and go, oh man, that is great. But then you stop and say, wait a minute, have we stooped so low that we are actually having to try to pass laws that keeps us from killing children with disabilities? And you look at that and you go, did we not learn anything from Mingli and the Nazis and that maybe we don't want to play God and mess around with eugenics? 
We got a bill in our own Congress right now where they're kind of kicking it around where we can't say the pronouns he or she or husband or wife. We got a thing going on right now that says, well, you can't use the, the you can't use an animal for any kind of insult. You can't say that someone is a dog because then that is, that is discrimination and racism towards animals. And I'm just going to be honest and say, whenever we try to figure out our deep-seated problems on our own, they usually end up being pretty dumb. That's why we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. He stepped in to fix this for us. And so, this is where it all kind of comes to the head then. History then is Jesus' story. He steps in to break all of this for us. Now watch, the very same things that are applied to us, now you apply them to Jesus. Take Psalm 8 and do this. He was made a little lower than the angels for a while. That's his humiliation. He suffers, he dies, he takes on flesh and blood. And then he's crowned with glory and honor. He is exalted. And you come to verse 8 and you see the verse 8 says, we don't see everything yet in subjection to him, yet. But man... It's coming. And so look at that. So the next time you feel like you're losing, and the next time you feel like, hey, is this following Jesus really worth it? Maybe I do want to drift away. Maybe I want to do go back to to the way of life before I came to Jesus. The next time you feel like that, just remember the history. Look to the end. God is, is in the long game of playing out his history. Don't, get, don't lose the forest for the trees. Don't get so caught up right here. Because what does he say? Man, right now, what does he say? Not right now, not everything is objection to him. And I look around the world today, and not everyone has their knee bowed to Jesus. And not everyone is confessing him as Lord. But I'm going to tell you something, friends. You can take it to the bank that one day Jesus is gonna split the sky and Jesus is gonna come to this earth and when Jesus comes to this earth, this will be the posture of all people. And listen, we are all gonna confess that Jesus is Lord. So if you're a child of God, don't forget the end of the story. If you're not a child of God, you're gonna be in this posture one day. And so my exhortation to you is, if you're going to get like this one day, why not right now? Why not like the electricity? (laughs) You grab onto a down power line, it's so powerful, you, you can't even let go of it. We're all kind of at the mercy of electricity. When it goes off, we all kind of panic and lose our mind. We're, we're at the mercy of Jesus. Everything is under his control. And so don't lose sight of that. We end. Let me tell you this lady's story. In the 1950s and 60s, Florence Chadwick was kind of a famous person in the world for long-distance open-water swimming. She was the first woman to ever swim the English Channel in both directions. And so one day she decided she's going to be the first woman to swim the gap between Catalina Island and California, 22 miles. So she starts at Catalina Island. She's going to go that direction. Gets into the icy cold, very cold water there, and she begins to swim. 22 miles. And she starts swimming. They got the boats next to her looking for sharks and all that kind of help. Water. And so she starts swimming. She starts swimming. She's going for a long time. Swimming, swimming, swimming. And then about 
Two-thirds of the way through the swim, this huge fog just rolls in. And you can't see anything. And she's swimming, and the people in the boat realize she's beginning to fade. They kind of try to encourage her. And then finally, she just gets to a place, and she says, pull me out. I, I, I can't go anymore. Pull me out. Oh, no, just pull me out. So they pull her out of the water. When they pull her out of the water, that's when they, she realizes she was less than one mile from the California coast. And later to interviewers, she said, you know, I was tired, but if I could have seen the coastline, I know I could have finished. It was that fog that messed with my head. And I'm just telling you, friends, there's gonna be days when we get up and all I can see is the fog. And I, I've got to remember what the writer of Hebrews has said. On the other side of that fog stands Jesus Christ in triumphant victory. Don't lose the forest for the trees. Don't get caught up in, 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 in all of the what seems like we're losing. No. We are following Jesus, who is the winner. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for such an encouraging passage of Scripture today. And thank you that in following you, Lord, we're on the winning side. And thank you that we are privileged to know how history ends with you as King of kings and Lord of lords. So I pray, Father, that we would uh, not try to fix the problems with any of our own wisdom or worldview, but, Father, that we would trust, it has been said somewhere, the authority of your word, the truthfulness of Scripture that tells us what history really is. And so I pray, Father, that we would come and just submit, and, God, that we would be encouraged today that even when the fog of our suffering rolls in around us, we know, Lord, that you are still there. We know that you are on the other side. And so, Lord, help us not to drift away. Help us not to stop, go back from following you, but, Lord, to follow you with all of our heart. How we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.